Welcome to the sag After Foundation's Conversations podcast. The sag After Foundation believes that contributions made to our culture by performing arts are not only valuable, but also essential. And so we provide free programming and services like this podcast to support them. If you'd like to learn more about the sag After Foundation or access the full library of our conversations or make a donation to support this podcast, please visit sagaftra.foundation. That's www.sagaftra.foundation. Also, subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at SagAfterFound. Thanks, and enjoy the conversation. Um, good evening. As the nice lady told you, my name is Janelle Riley, and I'm so thrilled uh, to be here tonight for the SAG Foundation conversation with one of the best actors working today, Ewan McGregor. Uh, this is the true definition of an actor's actor, someone who consistently gives daring and brilliant performances. He can play anything from a rock star to a Jedi. So thrilled to have him here tonight. Uh, this year alone, he showed his range in two of my favorite movies of the year, Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, and The Impossible, which I guess I can go on record as saying is my favorite movie of the year by far. Um, and I'm going to work very hard to not get emotional when talking about it. Um, please join me in welcoming Ewan McGregor. Kind, thank you. Well, now I'm afraid we're out of time. <laughs> um, thank what you. What about the people behind this cameraman? That sucks. Doesn't Are you it? doing okay? Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of those cheap seats in the theatre where you have the pillar. That's annoying. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming out tonight. Um, since this is a SAG audience, I generally like to uh, start by asking, how did you get your SAG Have card? I paid my dues? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hope so. I think I'm up to date. I hope so. Literally and figuratively, have you paid your dues? Yeah. No, I, I do. I've, I've always thought it was very important. In Britain, uh, we have equity, and I've always thought that that was important. Um, and I came out, uh, I left drama school at a time when it became sort of le slightly less important. Getting an equity card in Britain was a big big deal when, when in the time when there was more uh, regional theatre and things. and um, But I still thought it was always very important and getting a SAG card is, is the equivalent here for me anyway. I don't know if that if, if you agree. but um, I, I, And I got my SAG card I think by um, probably it would have been the first film that I shot here, right? And it was a film called Nightwatch a long, long time ago. It was the first film I ever shot in the States and the first film I shot in LA, I think. Oh, wow. That was pretty well into your career in film. I can't remember. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. I mean, I, no, I do remember. It was, um, I, I can remember everything by when, how old my kids were at, at that given time. And my, I, I had to leave uh, London to rehearse for three weeks when my baby was three weeks old. Oh, wow. And it was a nightmare. It was a nightmare. So it was 16 years ago. Um, I want to start at the beginning with your career. Uh, you were born and raised in Scotland. Um, that's not just affectation you're hearing. Um, <laughs> I'm working on a Scottish accent for a piece. Yeah. I'm really American. When did you first become interested in acting? I first became interested in acting just by my um, uncle is um, an actor, uh, Dennis Lawson. He's a very, very brilliant actor. And um, I, I grew up with this extraordinary relation, this um, kind of odd, flamboyant man who, um, you know, I was born in 71, 
and he, I think in 1971, was doing a production of Hair in Amsterdam <laughs> and uh, giving out um, flowers in the square in Amsterdam with long hair and a sheepskin waistcoat and beads. No shoes, I think, was quite important at the time. And um, I was brought up in a very small, uh, you know, a very small Scottish town, really small. Um, a very conservative little place, farming and uh, farming really was the was the kind of order of the day there. And um, and my uncle would come, who was an, an actor in London, and he he would come up to Scotland. And this, you know, uh, there wasn't anybody like him where I lived. And um, he was also my uncle, you know. And I was just, I just was, um, I remember that excitement about when he was when he would come to visit. And I wanted to be like him, I think. I wanted to be anything that he was, you know. So from a really, really young age, I wanted to be an actor. And I remember, you know, going to see him and stuff. The first time um, he was in a... T there was a television series of short plays that were that were done for television. And I, he was in one that freaked me out. It started off with a, a mannequin's head turning round. And, and when it turned round and it wasn't a real person's head, I lost it. I was like four or five and I freaked out. And, um, but, you know, seeing somebody that you know and love like that in the arts or, um, I remember seeing him in theatre in London when I was a kid, you know, going to see him in, in plays, um, in small theatres uh, to begin with. And then, um, later on in the West End, he became very popular in musicals. He did quite a few musicals in London. And, uh, I, I, that probably... That's why I wanted to be an actor, I'm sure. To be, to, it's, it's interesting, I often wonder if he hadn't been an actor, would I still have, because I really feel that this is the right thing for me to be doing. I don't have any qualms about that, but um, I wonder if I would have thought about it if he hadn't sort of paved the way for me, you know, um, by making it possible that to come. I mean, I had a lot of it when I was a kid. People, when I said I wanted to be an actor, kind of raising their eyebrows and, you know, smiling at each other like I was living in a dreamland. I was living in a dreamland and it worked out all right. So, um, but, uh, but if he had, but he, because he'd done it, you know, he was working, he was, he sort of made it possible, I suppose, in my mind. And then it was about finding out how to do that. You know, what does it, what is, it's very cold in here. Does everyone else find it? Yeah. Should we turn the air conditioning down a little bit or? Okay. <laughs> Maybe we could, it's a bit chilly. Yeah. Um, I, I, then you have to find out what that means to be an actor, and you know, it was nine. I was nine when I said to him, Dennis, I, Uncle Dennis, I want to be an actor, and he said, Well, come back to me in ten years when, if you still feel that way, you know. But he was very instrumental in in um, starting me on my path, if you like. Anyway, I'm not letting you ask any questions. Sorry. Uh, they're not here to hear me. It's fine. <laughs> you don't have to agree so loudly. <laughs> that was really loud, though. If you ever said that. No. <laughs> um, I have heard, though, that uh, you know, so many people are discouraged from going into acting by family and friends who are being very practical. But is it true your parents actually encouraged it? Yes. Yeah. And my mum was driving me into Creef one night. I was just sixteen. And uh, it was pouring with rain, as it often is in Scotland. And I remember the windscreen wipers splashing the water off the windscreen as we drove along. And she said, um, as we drove along, she, I could feel that she was quite tense. I didn't know why. And she said, listen, I've spoken to your father. And if you, if you want to leave school, you can. And I, and I, I couldn't 
believe uh, what I was hearing. And I, that was it. I never went, I never, I left that moment in my head. And um, I, it was just absolute courage on their part because they always knew, they knew what I wanted to be. They knew I wanted to be an actor. And um, they knew that I wasn't happy at school. And in actual fact, it wasn't going to benefit me to stay uh, because I was so hell bent on be doing what I do that, um, and they could see that, I guess. But it's very nerve wracking, especially for, I would say, especially for my parents who are teachers and um, aren't, you know, it was scary. My dad, I think, was scared to death that what, what that meant. And, and he'd, his understanding of this business is very, was very small at that time. And um, I think he was terrified that I would, you know, be destitute and it wasn't what he wanted for me, you know. But still, he... he he, it was interesting he wasn't there when she told me, that's funny. I don't know if I just thought of that, but um, he, he let me go and she let me go. And I had nothing to do and I'd been pestering Perth Repertory Theatre for, which was the town near us, not far from us, the town of Perth. And um, they have a rep theatre there, a good one. And I'd been pestering them since I was 15 really to let me do something there, let me work there in some capacity or help or make tea or whatever. Um, and they always told me that, you know, you could, you're not allowed, they weren't allowed to hire somebody to do stage management work if I wasn't trained as in stage management or had any kind of training at all. Um, but fortuitously for me, that the, the, the day I left school, I mean, I got on the phone with them that day again. I said, please, just let me come. I'm really, I can make tea. I'm good, you know. And, uh, <laughs> but, they, but they were, I think it was a week later, they, got, they came back to me. Now, it could have been mo years, months, you know, but it was, so, it was a week later when, the, my, when I'd left school and I had no, no, nothing ahead of me, really. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't worry about that, but my parents must have been quite worried about that. And they were, do, they were starting a production of Passage to India, and they needed some Indian extras for the play. Naturally. So I, <laughs> so I went in, and I was hired. I was hired... And a, like eight days after my mum said you can leave school, I was standing on stage in Perth Rep Theatre, 16, <laughs> surrounded by professional actors, with a director, Joan Knight, she died sadly, but Joan Knight, she was great, fantastic uh, director there, and she, everyone was darling, you know, it was the old school, darling, <laughs> darling, move a bit to the left, darling, <laughs> that's it. And I had no idea which darling I was, you know, as I, <laughs> so there was quite a lot of darlings on stage. And, um, and I, anyway, it was unbelievable for me. I, I, I stayed there six months. Um, I, was, I was sort of, uh, I was a sort of dog's body, but at the same time I became part of the stage crew. I was one of the, um, I would work the shows at night, I would work the plays in the off stage. Uh, any scene changes and stuff like that, I would be involved in those. And often that involved being in costume, you know, some directors would have the, the scene changes done. And so I started my life as an actor there, really, at 16, and um, made mistakes. I remember there was a, a, a brilliant uh, young Indian actor who was playing one of the leading roles in that, and I walked into the bathroom before one of the shows, and he was standing in front of the mirror, and he was pulling faces. <laughs> And making funny faces and I stood behind him and I was laughing and I thought it was so funny that he was making faces at himself and he looked at me like I'm doing my warm-up and I went oh my god what's a warm-up I don't know what that is you know so uh but anyway so I auditioned so between I knew I couldn't get to drama school at 16 
And I knew that there was a there was through working in Perth Rep, I um I learned that there was a there was a theatre arts course at two in Scotland for sixteen year olds to twenty four year olds, and it was a year of quite intense work to see if it was the for a lot of people to see if it was the kind of thing they wanted to do, um, and a bunch of us who knew absolutely that it was what we wanted to do, which is what made it very difficult, in fact. But I addition to two of them, and that's where my uncle came in handy. Um, again, and because uh, he came to me up to Scotland and he worked with me on some speeches, and I'd never—I it was the first time I'd ever auditioned. I'd never auditioned before. I never had thought about it, you know. Um, and he suggested some pieces that were that turned out to be really interesting choices, you know, far far more interesting than I would ever have thought of my own. Some of them, um, he uh, there was a—I did a speech from um, a play called Road. Uh, by Jim Cart Cartwright, and um, it's there's a brilliant speech. It's a really angry play. It's a good play, and, and there's a speech in it that starts. I feel like England's forcing the brain out of my head, and it's a sort of angry skinhead character. And um, so we started working on that, and I played him as a, I've played him as a Scotsman, and because he's not written as a Scotsman, but it added a certain sort of political edge to the piece. You know, I feel like England's forcing the brain out of my head. You know, and um, it was an interesting piece, and I'd, I'd had no connection to what I was doing. I, I had no, I was saying words, you know, I'd learnt words and I was saying them. I had no connection to them. I didn't understand that yet. I was 16 and my concept of acting was, was shallow, you know. And, um, but I'd been, uh, I'd been beaten up in Glasgow uh, a couple of weeks before he arrived. By Literally. a drunk, yeah, okay. I was beaten up by a guy on a train. I, I was there with some friends, we'd gone to a house party in Glasgow. It was a big deal to go to Glasgow for us. We were real chuchters, we're called. We're from the Highlands, you know, little, town, little small town people. And we went to the big city and I was only 16, it was a big deal. And we got on a, a train, a tube train in Glasgow and to go to this party and a guy got on and was drunk and walked into a pillar and I made a joke. I said, watch the pillar. <laughs> and that, that, that apparently was the, the, maybe the worst thing that I could have ever said to anybody because he decided that when I got off, he was going to kick the shit out of me. And, and that's exactly what he did. Not even for the sake of a good joke. No, he didn't like it very much. <laughs> so anyway, um, when I'd... When I started the speech, my uncle, um, he said, okay, we were, we'd borrowed the, gy the gym in the school where my dad, where I went and where my dad taught. And um, there was nobody there. It was a Sunday, Saturday or something. It was empty. But he said, look, I, I, I want you to think about when you were beaten up in Glasgow. I went, okay. No, he said, really think about it, what it felt like, how humiliated you were when he was kicking you and punching you. And, um, and I was, I started thinking about it and started feeling that humiliation and that sort of pain and uh, upset. And um, he said, okay, now swear. And I went, what? He went, just fucking swear. Think about what he did to you, that guy. And I went, fuck, fuck. And he went, that's it, go on. And it just made me swear. And I found myself using hard words and feeling this hard emotion. And somehow there was a connection to that that I'd that was incredibly powerful. I'd never felt that before. And he went, okay, now let's do the piece. And I started the piece and I suddenly felt this, I was saying words and feeling these massive feelings 
and they were connected to the text. And it was uh, just an a incredible moment for me. It was a, it was a realization of the power of what acting is, you know. And um, so I took that speech and I went and got into both of these. I auditioned in both of the, the one-year courses in Edinburgh and in um, Kirkcaldy, which isn't a huge kind of arts metropolis by any stretch. It's a town, an industrial town in Fife in Scotland. But it was, a, it was a, the, the course that I decided to go on. It was run by an American woman called Lynn Baines, who was a great teacher, and a Scottish man called Andy Mackey. And they both led a very difficult course. There were four productions in the year, and we had to do everything from uh, building the sets, making the costumes, publicizing the plays, um, stage managing them, or production managing them, or, and acting in them. And we had to do everything. And they were, we were given a position, you were given a part, and you were given a technical role. And um, it was a really tough year, because um, in one respect, it was the first time I'd, I left home, I was living away from home, I was on my own, I was 16. I was enjoying the kind of thrills of that, the flush of independence that that brings. And um, I fell in love for the first time there with a girl who was a brilliant stage manager. And, um, and, and slowly as the year went on, half the people or more than half the people decided that this wasn't for them. And yet the people who were left in that position of this is exactly what we want to do were, were then having to kind of drag everyone along who decided that they weren't really interested anymore. Because when you're doing a play, it doesn't matter what, uh, it, none of the, what matters is the play, right? What you're doing. And you can't drag your heels when you're doing a play, you can't, or, or mounting one. So it got really difficult. And at 16, you know, I was the third production. I was stage manager and I had a little part and or production manager, I forget. But I, but I was having to tell people who were older than me, sometimes six, seven years older than me, to, to get on with it. And I, I, I didn't have the skills to do that. And, and, um, and I became quite unpopular. And, uh, and as, did, as did my girlfriend, who was a stage manager. And it became quite, that became very difficult because we, because... I think we just felt that we this we know we wanted to do this so badly and we wanted to do it properly and um, it was difficult to see that it wasn't being done properly and that so that led to all sorts of kind of I remember driving home at night one night because we just couldn't take it anymore and I had a little beetle I, I started my love affair with the Volkswagen Beetle then it was oh, I, really? I was I must have been seventeen by that point and um, uh, I had got my first car that I bought for five hundred pounds. And, I, and we drove back in that occasionally, just like going, what the fuck is going on? What the fuck? <laughs> and um, it, was, it was an interesting time. But it taught me a great deal of discipline. And it taught me a, a great, it, I mean, it, I wrote something for the first time there. We had to do, a, a, we did a project about um, oil rig workers. And because and, um, from Fife, you can see the oil rigs off the coast. And uh, so I wrote this piece that I, I'd, never, I'd never written anything before about a man who, because there's a great deal of accidents and oil rigs, and I wrote a piece of a man who was lost his legs and was wheeling himself along looking at an oil rig. I can't remember what he said, but he said some amazing things. <laughs> and, uh, Did you play him too? Well, I, I, I used it, funnily enough, then I went to drama school in London. You know, I auditioned for drama school in London, uh, and I got into Guildhall School of Music and Drama. And I went there, and I spent almost three years there, because I left early. But when we did our agents evening in the beginning of the third year, I, I, I used that speech that I'd written in Kirkcaldy. And, um, 
And uh, it, it was, uh, I had no idea. I, I had no idea. I mean, that's a whole long discussion about drama school as well. But by the time we got there, I didn't know if I was any good or I had no concept of what really what I was doing. It, it's difficult to... Um, I was lucky in that somewhere along the line in the third year, I just thought, oh, fuck, I can't. I've, I got in here with something. I've got to be... I've just got to rely on that, you know, and I sort of felt that I threw, I, I loved drama school, I learned a great deal there, but there is a, there is a, it's easy to get lost there, I think, it's easy to lose your connection with what got you in in the first place, you know, you can become obsessed with technique and breathing and, which is important, I mean, don't get me wrong, <laughs> you'll always find me doing breathing exercises on this side of a set, but anyway, um, I, I wheeled myself out on, the, on this wheelchair to do that speech in front of 250 agents and casting directors and people from the business in London. People who were uh, responsible for my f career, if I, or if I was gonna have one at all. And I got halfway through the speech and I dried. I, I've, I went up, I lost my lines. I oh, forgot wow. what was coming next. And um, I was quite angry with myself. I thought, fuck, I wrote this myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it. And, I, and I, so I looked down and I sort of, rubbed my stumps like this and <laughs> took a moment, you know, like I was all choked up and I couldn't carry on. And then it came to me and I carried on when I got off into the wings, you know, <laughs> sweating, sweating bullets. I, uh, I've, I've, I went over it and I realized I'd missed, I cut the only tiny moment of light relief in the whole thing. There was a little joke in the middle. I just cut it out, so it was just all bleak. But they they loved it, <laughs> and uh, and it, it didn't do me any harm. It was fine. Did you get an agent off of that? I did. Oh wow! Um, and at Guildhall, do they focus on a specific method, or is it kind of a mishmash of different techniques? No, all methods. You know, they try and give you a taste of everything, and it was really great. I mean, I loved it. The first, you know, I loved the f just getting into drama school. is just so enormous. You can't believe that you know it's so difficult to get in and and um and then you get there you know and I moved to London that was a big deal and exciting and I got to London I was 18 when we started the course or just 18 and um and then uh, the first year is really I loved all of it I like the tights and everything I like the movement <laughs> classes I love period dance we did this period dance class um with Sue Lefton who's fantastic I've worked with her since on movies and stuff and she's, um, she does this period dance cl class, which just old gavots and stuff, and it's so sexy. I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. And I liked all that. I was good at movement and things, because uh, I've always enjoyed that kind of thing, really. And, um, and, the, and then the only thing I didn't... Uh, I was quite lazy, I think. I, I, I probably still am quite lazy, but... Um, <laughs> Started acting at age 16. Uh, well, no, I'm, but, I mean, I'm quite lazy about it. I can be quite lazy about it, how I go about it, I suppose. And there, you know, I remember in my second, we came back in second year and we were working on scenes for, of, from The Seagull. And um, and the second uh, rehearsal, I came in and there was a, it was uh, Alec Guinness's sister-in-law. Um, she's a funny name, Shati Salaman was her name. <laughs> it was very old, old woman. And uh, she was, she sat there with her glasses like this, and she watched me do like destroying Trepley. Like, just. <laughs> she looked at me and she went, "Have you read this play? <laughs> Have you even read it?" 
And she was right. I don't think I had read it all. I just don't think I, I don't think I had. I'm so embarrassed. And she was right. And uh, and it, so uh, and then they what they did is a quite a clever thing is they gave me uh, the lead in as you like it, uh, which was the first taste of Shakespeare for me, and um, a terrifying, a terrifying to to sit uh, read through of any Shakespeare. I don't know how many of you've done that, but that's a really scary moment uh, when you start reading uh, a play that you're going to do written by Shakespeare for the first time with other actors who all seem to know that what it's about much more than you do. It's quite a scary moment. But um, then I, something happened and we were touring it for some reason to, uh, we took it to a, there was a drama school in Germany in Hamburg that was having some centenary or something. <clears throat> they had drama school students from all over the world, Russia. I remember meeting a lot of Russian drama students there and watching Russian theatres, just extraordinary. I don't know what it is, but they do, but it's something beyond what we all do. It's just incredible. Even though you can't understand the language, you're like, <laughs> you know, it's so moving. We, they came and they showed us some scenes at our drama school. And one of, they were just scenes from uh, A Month in the Country or something. And they set up this rope swing and the actress was on the swing. And it was, quite a lot, it was quite long, so she took quite a long time to swing back and forward in our little studio theatre, no bigger than this. And the guy stood by the side of the rope as he was as he was speaking to her, and he just had to keep ducking under the <laughs> under the rope as as it swung past his ear, and it was so it was unbelievably moving, mesmeric, you know. So um, we took it to Berlin, and then Istanbul. Weirdly, we played there for a few nights in a theatre that was the, the steepest rake of any stage I've stood on, and then the audience was raked the same way. So <laughs> people were sort of. It was like it was like you were in a plane taking off. It was like airplane theatre, and the, the worry was that if you slipped, you might roll right to the back of the fucking house, you know. So, um, but that was really a brilliant lesson for me because I couldn't not raise my game for it. You know, you can't do Shakespeare unless you apply yourself, and um, they saw that I think, and I can only assume that that's what they were. That's why they threw me that uh, challenge at the time. And something happened in rehearsal after, because I just felt like, which is something I've always felt like, is that I'm not good enough. I can't, it shouldn't be, everyone else is more, is cleverer than I, everyone else is more worthy, everyone else has got the right to do Shakespeare, and I don't have the right to do Shakespeare, and I'm that guy for some reason. And um, But in the middle of the second or third week of rehearsal, something happened, and it start, It just went, it's, it just tasted so good in my mouth, the words. And, and it, it, um, like, um, it happened to me the only other time I've done Shakespeare. I played Iago um, in 2007 in London um, with Chiwetel for playing Othello. And, and that was the scariest thing I've ever, ever done in my life. And, um, <clears throat> but the same thing happened there. There comes a point in rehearsal, luckily, thank fuck, that it doesn't happen like three <laughs> weeks into the run, but in the rehearsal room when suddenly it just tastes amazing, the words all make sense. There's no other words you can say, you know? It's perfect. Something really incredible about it. I, I don't, uh, that's why it's still being played now, I guess, that's why. Now, uh, you must have done pretty well in school. Did you ever technically graduate? Because I think you started working in your final year. Yes, I don't know. I don't, I never got a, 
I didn't. I don't. I don't think I got a scroll or anything. <laughs> Did you? Is that what you get when you graduate? You get a, <laughs> to wear the thing and the. I didn't. I didn't do that. I was working by then. I did, so from the agents' evening, I got my agent, Lindy King, who's still my agent today, and um, she put me up for a couple of jobs immediately. And it was we did our agency evening quite early on in Guildhall, which um, which was interesting. Most of the other drama students do, schools do it later, uh, like in their last term. But we did it, I think, in our first term, or yeah, in the first term, I think, third, second term. And um, so she put me up for a couple of jobs. One of which was the job that I really wanted. It was a beautiful independent movie, a small movie about a nineteen-year-old Irish kid in in just before the First World War who. Uh, is slightly a slight simpleton. He's there's something. He's he's slightly slow in his brain, and but he's got this obsession with um, kaleidoscopes and light, anything that reflect refracts light, uh, crystals, and it was really interesting kind of character. And and uh, he in the film befriends this really young girl, like a six seven year old girl, and um, they have this friendship that involves these kaleidoscopes and. Um, he gets sent off to war and it, it comes, but it's very tragic in the end. I think if I'm right, that she is, she ends up being killed by an, an accident. Um, and he survived the war, but his friend is dead. And, um, it was everything that you, that you would want to play, you know, yeah. at that age, it was just gorgeous. And it was being directed by Ferdy Fairfax, who, um, he's a good director. So I got, I got the script for that and I was reading that movie for the first time, um, with the possibility that I might be in it, you know, and that 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 I, I was absolutely ready for it. I mean, I I look back and I I wonder how kind of arrogant I was about <laughs> about being ready for that. Yeah. At, at the same time, feeling insecure at drama school, not knowing if I was any good or not, you know. But when it came, I was like, oh yeah, let's go, <laughs> let's do it. And at the same time, she put me up for this uh, television series. A six one-hour six one-hour episodes of a, a TV show by Dennis Potter, who was Britain's best television writer, singing detective, singing detective, yeah. pennies from heaven, amazing mind, an amazing man. And um, so she sent me these six scripts for a TV series uh, called um, Lipstick and Your Collar. And I I started doing the auditions for both, and I the six-part TV, you know. <laughs> And this one was a movie, so my heart was set on the movie and the TV. I went along with the auditions because why wouldn't you, you know? But it came down to I was down to the last two, I think, on both jobs, and um, the 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 auditions were. It sounds like I made this up because it sounds a bit too perfect, but it is the truth. <laughs> the two, the last recalls were on the same day and in very opposite sides of London. The first one was in the morning in Twickenham, which is in the south west of London. And the other one was in Clapham, which is in the south. Well, it's not that. Well, it's not that other side of London, but it's a long way anyway. So I got the train to Twickenham. <clears throat> it's like, yeah, TV, whatever. Looking at the scripts and the bit on the train on the way there, just waiting to get to the recall for the movie, which was later in the day. And I, I read with Rennie Rye was directing, and um, then they brought in Dennis Potter, who I'd never met before, and he came in and he sat there, and he was a very frightening man. He, he was. <laughs> He was a very, um, he's such a brilliant mind, but he's somewhat difficult. And um, he was, uh, he, his hands were crippled with um, a form of psoriasis, I think. 
and he he was he was very sick all all of his life. He had this terrible he had the skin complaint that mm. the character and the singing detective has. Oh, really? So he had that for real. So he lived a very uncomfortable life. But um, so he came in, and I and I I was somewhat blasé about it because I really just wanted to get on the train back to <laughs> slap him, you know. But that seemed to serve me well. I think that kind of la uh, lax affair attitude. Uh, is, is what they wanted for mm -hmm. that part. So I went, ran over to Clapham. I did the. I wanted it so badly. I, I guess that I didn't do the best. I didn't do my best work, and I um, didn't or whatever. I didn't get the film, and I got the TV series, and I was disappointed not to have got the film really because I I'm, even now I'm slightly disappointed <laughs> about it. <laughs> However, the film was uh, three weeks into our shoot. So that that was me out of drama school. Literally, I got wow. the job that was offered to me. Um, I, I was, uh, Lindy King was partnered with an agent called Jonathan Alteraz at that time who had a little office in Floral Street in Co Covent Garden, all cobblestones and D Dickensian, it's fantastic. And um, I went in there and I sat down and they said, you've, you've been offered the lipstick on your collar. And um, I couldn't believe it, I couldn't believe it. I can't remember if I knew I hadn't got the film by then, maybe I, I was, I was happy, very happy about it. And he said, um, Okay, this is what they're going to pay you. They're going to pay you twenty-four thousand pounds. And I, I, I looked at him and I said, "Can I, can I phone my dad, please?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he just slid the phone over because he was a very, he was a very cool man. He just slid the phone over. I dialed it. And I went, "Dad, got a job. <laughs> going to pay me twenty-four thousand pounds." And he, my dad, I think in that moment, and it's. It, it, it was a turning point for him, you know? It was, I could feel it on the phone that he was so happy for me, but also that it was, in that moment, he must have thought it's gonna be okay, you know? Yeah. And um, it was lovely that, I've always, I've always remembered that little moment, it was nice. And anyway, then I left drama school, which was sad in a way, but I, um, <clears throat> wasn't that sad, because yeah. I was gonna <laughs> Because I was working, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I went off to work. And I absolutely loved it. I loved it. I spent four years training to be uh, in working in the theatre, you know, on the one year course in Scotland and then in London, almost four years. And um, and then I took all that knowledge and some, you know, put, and I had six months shooting uh, in f uh, a, a movie. Literally, it was a, it was shot as a movie. One single camera work. Um, we had a, we shot in Twickenham Studio, little studios in London, beautiful little place. We had sets, um, we shot on locations, uh, and we and I learnt, I had, and also we started in a, this big office that uh, was set in the 50s in a war, war office in London, and I was playing a Russian translator in a Russian translating pool. So the, around the room were Peter Jeffries, Clive uh, Francis, um, there were some brilliant actors there, older actors who'd been act who I'd recognised from movies that I'd watched <laughs> when I was a, you know, I was still a kid, but when I was a kid. And um, and a young man who uh, ended, became my best man at my wedding and it became a very important person to me, Doogie Henshaw, who's a Scottish actor, older than me a little bit, who was playing the corp, nasty corporal down to my right. <clears throat> and on the first day, the second day on set, the second day on set, I think the first day I, I was just a whirlwind, you know. My uncle again came into play here because he, he the night before I started, he said, come over to my house before you start. So the night before I went over, and he took me into his bedroom and he 
he gave me a quick masterclass on the technicalities that I might see on set. Because at drama school, you don't learn any of that stuff. You don't, you don't have classes for that. Like hitting your mark. Yeah, like he that. put some socks down really? on the floor and he went, let's go over there. And I stood over there and he went, walk over and stop at the socks. And I walked over and stopped at the socks. He went, no, you looked at the socks. <laughs> don't look at the socks. Stop on the socks. So I went back and I went, stop on the socks, stop, 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 stop. And he told me about... Um, he told me about cheating eye lines and, you know, none of that stuff you would know until suddenly you'd be on set going, what? I was looking over there, but what, shouldn't I? You know, he told me all of these things to expect what the names of people would be the gaffer, the best boy, the grip, you know, what these people do, what... They should what, teach that in school. Yeah, it would be help. It would yeah. be handy. It would be handy. I mean, partly you can't, you, you know, the acting in front of a camera, you have to learn by doing it. But the, the technicality, would, yeah. it, would, would be, it would be handy not to have to worry about that when you get on there. But um, so anyway, the second day on set, I, 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 suddenly the, I was at my desk. Now, Dennis Potter used to, do, used to employ this um, technique of having people lip sync to original uh, music tracks. I feel really bad for the people behind the camera. Are you all right there? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, uh, oh, I'm up there anyway, so you're right. Yeah, <laughs> you're up there too. Um, he had to have you lip sync to original, uh, in this case, all 50s music. So the camera's in front of me on a crane, little crane, <clears throat> and we've got a big four-sided set. It's a proper big set with no ceiling. And um, it's fully dressed and fully lit. And the, the camera's... Lip about, I'd say about a foot in front of my nose, and I had to do this. I had to scribble my pen and look up at the clock there. Scribble my pen, look around every actor in the room. Scribble my pen, and then there's a click track, and then I had to look into the lens and lip sync accurately to. I found my thrill on Blueberry Hill <laughs> by whoever that's by. I can't remember now. <laughs> but um, you know, I, you know, I, it doesn't work if you're off. It doesn't yeah. work if you, if you get it. So I had the music for weeks and weeks. I, I, I could do it, but I, so the camera's there, and as I start singing, I found my thrill. The camera pans away and up into the corner from a close-up to me to reveal the whole world, the whole set, and everybody in it, who all then start singing with me to the, I find my throat. So we started that and I and we did one take and then we did another take and then we did another take and we did another take and we did another take. And I started, my heart started racing. I was thinking, shit, I, I, I started losing my nerve because we were doing five takes, 10 takes, 12 takes. And then um, Doogie, who had the presence of mind and the grace in his heart to come over to me and he went, they're not, you know, they're, it's not you. And I went, what? He said, it's not you, it's the move. The, cr the crane move is quite difficult to get and they're not getting it properly. Look, you know it's not you. And I didn't know it wasn't me. I, thought, <laughs> I just thought, it's me, it's me. I'm sweating, I can't do this. Shit, I've wanted to do this all my life and I can't do it, you know, in this moment. It was a nightmare. And um, it, was love I, it was so nice that he, did, yeah. he thought to do that. And I've always remembered that. And I've always remembered that with... Um, with uh, actors I work with yeah. and because um, it's really important they, uh, especially the hardest work job in the world is coming on to do a day on a movie yes but also there are some of the best some of the best fun actors that I've ever worked with are those guys you know girls that come in for a couple of days or something 
a lot of a lot of my friends are people, those those people who I've met along the way, and I've always just I've always liked working um, with everybody on a film. But that but that because that's that was an important lesson for me to remember, and I've tried to do that as well. If I see that if I see that happening with someone else, I'm sorry. I have to know you described it so well. What was the movie you didn't get? It was never made. Yeah, yeah. Three weeks after we started filming oh Lipstick, God. it was axed. It was never made. So if I'd, if I'd been offered both, I would absolutely have taken it, and I would, may not be sitting here now. You're kidding. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. I know, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> you did end up making your film debut in 1994's Being Human, I think. Was that your first movie? Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's that was same... amazing in that. <laughs> <laughs> you all remember that, right? Uh, but that same year, you also starred in Shallow Grave uh, with uh, Danny Boyle. Uh -huh. um, you played Alex Law in this movie. To this day, it remains a huge favorite of so many people I know. Did you have any idea, I mean, this scrappy little indie you guys were putting together would turn out to, to, to have be such a breakthrough for you? I've always imagined that they all will be. Uh, I, I've always um, felt like that, really. I didn't. I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know anything about the film world then, and um, I didn't know what we were doing really. I, I, I knew that it was an, it was a brilliant script, and I felt really. I felt that there was something special about it, but then I've felt that there's something special about all of them. I, 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 I wouldn't like. I've never been involved in a film where I haven't really felt like that. They're not all that way when they come out, of course, but you have to have that feeling when you're doing them, really. But I didn't know what they were doing visually and stuff and, yeah. and how new it was. And uh, in a way, I suppose that's fine because you're just playing your character. It doesn't, it wasn't important that I did re realize it until I, and then I saw it in the first, the first time I, I was shown it somewhere in Soho in London. And I could see what they were doing, you know, some tracking shots across the ceiling and the set that we used was huge. You know, like a, a, a very... Uh, the flats in Edinburgh are really big, big flats. People do live like that. But there, but ours was just that bit bigger. Um, and uh, the script was so good. It was just such a good, good story. It was such a good story. And, so, and great characters. And um, and something very uh, particular about John Hodges' writing that's really suited me. I like I loved his I love the way he writes. He writes not in a naturalistic way, and um, some. Uh, but I I got it. I somehow I I, I understood it. If you if you look at some of the lines, they're not they're not. We don't no, I mean, it's not just a Scottish. It's not like we all speak like that in Scotland. Do you know what I mean? There's something. There's a kind of. He's stylized his dialogue in a way. In a way that the film was stylized, so was the the writing. So, um, but it was fantastic. It was a fantastic experience. It was great. Great, great character to play. How did you first meet Danny Boyle? Uh, was it just, just by casting? I was doing a, I, after the lipstick. I did a play in um, outside of London in a town called Salisbury. I, I did a Joe Orton play called What the Butler Saw, and then I came back to London. And I did a three part adaptation of um, Stendhal's novel, the, the Scarlet and the Black, for the BBC. And we did that for four months. And at the end of that, I, we, we had a month in England shooting in kind of stately homes and whatever. And that's when I met Danny and Andrew and John. Uh, John Hodge, the writer, Andrew McDonald, producer, Danny Boyle, the director. And the three of them became um, 
became the most important people in my life for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and what we created together became what, uh, what we created together became the most important thing in my life, you know. The, 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 the being their actor and being the work that we did together was def defined who I was as an actor, I think. And, uh, and, and, and uh, so we started, but I just met them in a room and we just, the three of them were like some kind of indie band. <laughs> they looked sort of like, one of them should be a bass player and one was a drummer and they were kind of a bit odd. None of them very comfortable to talk to. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and they got me to read some of these scenes. And I suppose at that point I had a bit of momentum. I had a little bit of, you know, I was I, I was up and coming, if you like, in in from the television work I'd, mm -hmm. I had done. So um, so they cast me, and I was really glad they did. And then we went off to Glasgow, and I, I we lived in a house for a week. Me and Danny and Kerry Fox and Chris um, Eccleston, we all lived together for a week as a, as part of Danny's rehearsal process. And um, when, you know, he got the Glasgow Film Theatre to screen movies for us every night. For I can't remember the films, sadly, but films that he felt were relevant, you know, insp ins inspirational films for this piece, for, for what we were going to do. Was Repulsion one by any chance? No, I don't ah. think so. That was later in my life that I came <laughs> into play. But um, it was fantastic. And then, you know, we, we, we he, he uh, I talked about this, I don't know if any of you were at this Q&A we did last night but um so if I repeat myself forgive me but we but he sort of set out what is to me the best way of working on film the it's clear and it's very simple and obvious but um he he would rehearse for maybe a week or so and um he would because he was a theater director Danny and he so we would work on the text and we would work on the text on our feet and we would we would block it in a way you know we'd be in a rehearsal room with maybe tape marks on the floor like a like a theater theatrical rehearsal room and um we would move scenes around and try them in different ways and most of the scenes i mean obviously in a movie there are some scenes where you're walking down the street we didn't rehearse those but anything we're involving dialogue or um we would rehearse them and and get them to a place where we all felt that's it that's how we'll that's how we'll do it and it would be just him and us the actors and then we would, and then when we were on set, the first thing that ever happened with a new scene is that he would clear everyone out, and we would have the set, he and the actors, on our own, with no sense of kind of um, pressure of time. But because we'd already blocked it, it didn't take us very long to knock through the scene again. And um, if maybe something to do with the light or the set had made um, a difference, so you would you would alter what you'd done in rehearsal room on the set. And then when you were all happy, this is the scene, we've got it. He'd bring the heads of department in, we'd show it to them. And, uh, uh, you know, I mentioned that that's showing to the crew. It's really important for us as actors because it's the first and only time that we ever perform the scene to an audience. And it's lovely. I love it. I think it's a, you find lots of stuff in that little rehearsal because your instinct as an actor is to perform the scene to an audience. So when people are watching, you discover stuff that you wouldn't have done so otherwise. So I think it's really key that. And then we go off to make up our hair or whatever, and he and his heads of department light set up the shots based on what they've seen. And now everybody on the floor knows what the scene is. Everyone's seen it. Everyone knows what we're going to do. 
No, and, and it saves such a lot of time later because we don't walk on set and things don't work and it doesn't feel right. And, and um, you know, we get bad rap for that, actors, because people think that we're sort of time-wasting. But it's but if you just rehearse it in the yeah. first place and show it to everyone, no, nothing would, you know, there wouldn't be these hiccups later on down the line. And I've always just thought that that's the best, best, best way to... Sometimes, you know, I remember having a conversation with him about that in, um, when we did Life Less Ordinary in the States. And he went, yeah, but you know, sometimes there's a shot that I really want and I'm going to set it up and I'm going to ask you to do that shot because that's the way I really want to, I've seen it. Mm -hmm. And he's right, that's, there's always exceptions. You know, there is, every director's got the right to want a shot that he's seen in his mind, you know, where maybe there's a profile shot here and a rack of focus back there, something that, he, that, that really tells the story right. And then, then as an actor, you should go, Absolutely, I'll stand on this mark. That's right. You know, you'll fine. hit the socks. That is fine. Yeah, I'll hit the socks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you followed Shallow Gray. You and well, I mean, this team that had kind of come together uh, <laughs> with Train Spotting, um, another movie that people are fanatical about. I did. Well, I did. What very important film for me in between, to be honest. Do you mind if I? Of course not. Because um, I, I did a film. I think the second film I made was that. I know. It was the second film I made was a film with Peter Greenaway called The Pillow Book. Yes. And it's probably, it was one, it was a really important, important film for me, that one. I don't know exactly why, but there's something incredibly beautiful about it. And as an experience, it was, it was unlike uh, most other films because you're working with Peter Greenaway, who's an extraordinary artist and, and set up long shots. He would, instead of spending, um, the morning shooting, setting up five shots, he would set up one, but it would take five minutes to play. And so it really, really was a beautiful meld of theater and um, film because you had to play really long extended scenes in, in one go. And uh, I loved working with him, I loved it. He's a very uptight, arrogant, intellectual man who, who and you did, you got the, at that age, I was very young, but at that age, I really, I had the real whiff that there was nothing of interest that I had yeah. could possibly say to him. <laughs> he gave you that impression, you know, because <laughs> it was probably true. But anyway, um, but I loved working with him, and I, and there was something very special about this sort of um, op the the uh, you know, I got the job. I got the. I, I went for an audition with him, and I and and he said, asked me if I would be prepared to he said you'd have to be naked and I'd have to, and I'd be allowed to shoot any part of your naked body is that if you have a problem with that and I said no he said you have to simulate sexual intercourse with a woman do you have a problem with that and I said no and he said you'd have to simulate sexual intercourse with a man do you have a problem with that and I said no and he said um so he gave me the job I, I don't know maybe I was the only actor who didn't have a problem with all of it but there was something about the experience of doing that that was that was also very important for me, that that, that early stage, to be that uh, literally exposed, but emotionally exposed and physically exposed, and um, to to push yourself into situations that you have never been in, or um, it was really in, in, important for me. It, it sort of it sort of set a, the bar quite high for me in terms of that anything should be possible. Yeah. That there shouldn't be any sort of you know, I've, uh, there shouldn't be any limits on what you might do. You actually shot that before train spotting? Yes. Oh, I didn't realize that. I did, um, yeah. Because actually, I was I was going to ask about the nudity. Um, you would go on to do that in train spotting and films like Young Adam. And I, I think 
American audiences at least find this so interesting because that's just not common in our films. Um, did you ever have any qualms about any of the on-screen nudity? No. No, I don't. I never have done. I mean, I've never done it. I've never. I've once t said that I wouldn't do it because it became it's because it because it sort of, because it felt gratuitous and, and it's become a because the media are so crass and shallow. It's become a sort of joke about me, which I which I don't like. I I think it's a film represents life and and life involves nudity. You know, at both ends of the day for me, and if you're lucky, somewhere in the middle. And, um, <laughs> So uh, if films really truly represent life, yeah. why on earth would we not have naked people in mm. movies? I mean, it's just, and also at that point when I started in the early 90s, you know, uh, we were coming out of that, you know, girls were always having to show their boobs in movies and um, it's changed, thankfully. But um, at that point, you know, I, 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 really, I really felt that, fuck it, I, why should, we never see men, we never see... Yeah. We never see a penis in anything. Why? Why don't we do that? I see that. So um, I, I've just always thought that it's really. I've, I'm always really connected to my work. I think the work's important, and it's and um, you know nudity and the naked body and sexuality and um, are are all very important things to us as people and and a huge drive in our what makes us tick as as people our sexual life and. Um, so I think that's important to explore and work. I've always been happy to do that. I, it's embarrassing to do if, it's, if it doesn't have that sort of weight behind it. I, I did a film called Young Adam where there was a great lot of sex in it and it, the sexual content in that film, the sex scenes charted my character's moral decline through the mm -hmm. film. There was a cold, empty, a void feeling about the sex in, in a lot of that film. Which was which was really interesting to just explore, and um, and and to sort of demean it by by Gore McGregor's naked again. I was just annoyed by that. I, yeah. I think it's a shame. But whereas violence and bloodshed and that's not that doesn't upset anybody. I mean mm -hmm. that really. I don't want to see someone's intestines. That upsets me. But if I see someone's penis, that's fine. I don't care. You know. I don't want to see guts and decapitation, but I'm quite happy to watch someone have sex. <laughs> Were you aware um, when Young Adam first came out here, they cut a lot of the nudity and there was a huge petition to oh, yeah? get nudity reinstated? That's got to be flattering. <laughs> it's just what the film's about, you know. It's 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 not the same film without it. Yeah. I mean, how could you? And why would you? What's the, I know it'd be like twelve minutes long. What would the people? What what is what is the problem? I'll, when you look at it, I don't get it. What is what's so upsetting to people about two people making love? It's unbelievable to yeah. me. Whereas violence is so acceptable and and. We love it, you know, or the, it seems that, you know, the Hollywood uh, studio system makes extraordinarily violent films because I guess they know that there's a market for it. But we can't have two people, you know, I, I watched a great, there's a beautiful film um, directed by um, Nanni Moretti, an Italian director who mm -hmm. I was lucky enough to work, uh, be on the jury with in Cannes this year. He's a fantastic director, a brilliant filmmaker. And he made a film called The Sun's Room, which was just br absolutely breaks your heart. Oh my God! And I was—I went to see it when I was making Young Adam in Glasgow. I went to see it in the Glasgow Film Theatre one afternoon when I had an afternoon off, and it was me and two ladies behind me, <laughs> three Glasgow wifeys behind me. And um, in this film, it's about a family, right? It's about a family, and in the family, the this teenage son dies, 
and it's a film about l loss and how how do they how can they live and how do they carry on it's beautiful it's a beautiful film well at the beginning of this film before this loss of the sun there's a scene with nanny who's directed and he acts in his films and his wife they're married they've been married for years they've got teenage children and in this scene they're talking about stuff and but they're in bed they're talking before they switch the light out and then just before he switches the light out he goes over and he's, he gives her a little kiss and the moves like he's got they're maybe going to start to have sex and he switches the light out and the two wee ladies behind me went oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought they're married and everything what possibly could be the problem you know <laughs> the problem is they weren't having sex <laughs> that's the problem <laughs> Going back to train spotting, uh, to prepare for a role like that, a heroin addict, um, you looked much thinner. I mean, was there a lot of physical preparation involved? Yeah. I took a lot of heroin. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For months and months, so I don't method. remember. <laughs> no, I did want to though. I did want to, because I did I'd never taken heroin. And I thought that it would be important to do so yeah. because um to to know what it felt like. But um and even discussed it with Danny, you know, and, and I, I said, look, John Hodge, our writer of, of all the three films I made with him, is a doctor. He is a doctor first. And then he wrote a script, Shallow Grave, and, and, um, but he's still, uh, all the time, he's a doctor. I said, John's a doctor. He could give it to us. <laughs> we could get a room and we could both do it. John could administer it so that we don't die. And uh, we'd know what we were doing. And we talked about it and discussed it. And then we started working on the on the film, and um, as soon as I was, we were working with heroin addicts in recovery. You know, uh, we worked with this amazing bunch of guys up in Glasgow called the Carlton Athletic Club, who are um, recovering heroin addicts who don't believe in using methadone or substitute drugs, which is a, 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 a which is key. Uh, methadone's horribly, far more addictive than. Mm -hmm. um, heroin is and it's really just society's way of stopping heroin addicts from stealing is what what it does because it puts people in a sort of um zombie like state and they they're, they're very lethargic and they don't steal stuff really that's what it is it's awful but they don't believe in it quite rightly and they they do stuff where they meet every night and they talk to each other and they uh, uh and they asked us you know we were allowed to come and sit in the back room of their meetings and um also, they have a football team and they, you know, they, they do stuff. They beat us mercilessly. <laughs> this bunch of Glasgow heroin addicts ran rings around <laughs> all these little Scottish actors, you know, who were murdered by them. Um, I'd like to see them against the methadone patients. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, would be a, that would be a quick game. <laughs> but um, well, as soon as we started, as soon as we were in those rooms and I started hearing those guys talking to each other, and they're hard men, you know, they're, and women, they're... they're Stories are brutal, and they've 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 experienced life in a low low place. You know, heroin is a horrible drug, and a, it's the the addiction to it is is truly awful and destroys people's lives. And as soon as we heard those men and women talking, and and also you know you're not I, I you're not used to seeing the the kind of tenderness and the 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 just those people reaching there for each other was quite something to see. You're not used to seeing that in everyday life, you know? 
that kind of level of uh, dedication to other, to each other as human beings, even though that they're people, if you saw on the streets, that you might um, not expect that from. I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> and, and, and as soon as we heard those men and women talk, the idea of taking heroin to make our movie was just a horrible idea, you know, disrespectful and awful, and, and we never would do that. But um, to get back to your question, um, the, they, they gave me the script in Sundance when we were there with um, Shallow Grave, and they gave it to me, and they're all, they always did this, they said, we're not offering you this, but we just want you to read it and see what you think. And I, I read the part of Train Spotting, and um, I read Train Spotting, sorry, and the part I mean, you can't. How can you read that script and with that? That's one of that's the best role you could ever play. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the best role. That's the role you you dream of. Of you you die for that kind of part, and um, and so I then had to sort of prove to them that I was the right guy for the job, and they weren't. Uh, John told me years later, in a very sweet way, that that he. He didn't think I was the right guy for the part then, and um, he was the one that Danny and Andrew were, were thought that I could do it, but he he, had, he didn't think so, and um, he told me he changed his mind when, after we saw it. But uh, but he but he but after he you was finished the, one, the movie. And no, he no, saw after it? he. St I mean, once we started, I guess oh. or something. But then I I just started losing weight. I started losing a lot of weight, and I I. Um, because I wanted very much to, I just had to do it, you know, and I had to prove to them that I was the right guy. So the next time I met them was some weeks later, and um, or maybe four or five weeks, I don't know how long it takes to get skinny, but he could see already that I dropped a lot of weight and that I, uh, that, uh, that my, he could see my commitment to it, you know, was strong. And uh, we'd, I remember that time, it sort of came together in their office that it felt like I might get to do it. And I said, I think he should be a skinhead. I think he should have a skinhead. I've just seen him that way. He's not written that way in the book. But um, I, I had the strong feeling that that was right for him. And uh, so I went out and I just went around the corner and I did it. You know, they went, okay, okay. And there's always a great deal of, you know, we've all been in that situation. There's so much fucking talking about stuff. And, you know, producers. And But in that state, we were all in the room. There was the producer, the writer, and the director. We yeah. were all there, you know. There was no one to answer to, really, which was the beauty of it. So I went around the corner and buzzed my hair off. And when I came back, they were all like, yeah, that's, that's it, that's him, that's him. <laughs> and it was the most extraordinary experience. It was the most, it was the smoothest filmmaking experience I've ever had. It was absolutely like clockwork. Everything was, the casting, the, the um, design, the sets, the, the, everything just hummed along like a like a beautiful machine it was su super smooth he did takes he did one take of things sometimes he would just go we've got it and you go everyone would be looking at each other he's going, we've got it let's go he wouldn't do two takes you know if he didn't feel like he, if he really felt like he had it and we didn't have long we had a um i can't remember what the, i can't remember what the budget was a million pounds maybe nothing we had like we had so little time and yeah. we had a lot of locations. There was a lot of stuff around Glasgow. So we were always jumping in vans and it was so exciting. It's the kind of filmmaking that I love to this day yeah. the best, you know, when you can do that, when you don't have an army to move from one place to the other, when you can just do that, jump in minibuses and it's like your change your costume on <laughs> the way there, you know, in the back of the minibus. It's great. And you jump out and go, you know, running down Princess Street with you and Bremner like that. 
It's an amazing film. It's, the, it's you know, it's it's lovely that it's still it's the film that most people talk to. You know that really people. It's the more film. so than Star Wars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I well. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. I think when people think of me, they think of that film, don't yeah. they? Really? Yeah. yeah. I fucking hope so. Anyway, but anyway, <laughs> and, it, and it's it's so nice that, that it's lovely to because for some people that's a curse, you know. But for me, it's lovely that it's that film because yeah. it's just an amazing film. I love it. I'd love to have a train spotting action figure more than <laughs> uh, that. Film was also a huge hit internationally. I mean, did it did it change things for you career wise? Was that when Hollywood came calling? I don't know. I've I've never I you know I'm not aware. I've never felt that. No, I don't think. I mean, I don't. I don't remember what came next uh, after that. I did a film called Emma, which I, mm -hmm. which I was the, oh, terrible in. I was the worst what? thing. I Every woman in the audience, when you said Emma, just went, "Oh." Yeah. oh. <laughs> I was terrible in that film. Really, I mean, I was really. I, 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 I think you were terrible. I was, ter I was terrible in it. It's I not, wrote it I on think a horse. I was. Come on, bitch! In that film, I, I, I finished train spotting. I went to I went to France and I married my wife. And uh, I came back and I was on set on a horse and in in a film that I'd taken because I felt like I should do that. I felt like, oh, this is a really great contrast to Trainspot. Look, look, when they see me in a period drama next to a Trainspot, that's clever. <laughs> but that that was my that was the only time I did that, and I learned really? my lesson that the, the, you can't listen. It was a great, it was a lovely film. Uh, there was great actors in it. Doug McGrath was a great director, brilliant writer, and it was it was there was nothing wrong with the film except that I, sorry, <laughs> sorry, I somehow wasn't um, I wasn't my heart wasn't in it. I, I did it for the I did it for a reason that mm. wasn't I've got to play this part, and that that's um, it's not it didn't work. I had the worst worst wig in the world. Did you see the yeah. the wig didn't move. It was like a it was like a helmet made of hair. It was horrible. Harvey Weinstein came and said after two weeks and I I and I learned another lesson. I was looking in the mirror going, they must know. They must know what they're doing, these hair people. That looks like shit. But um, it must look alright on film. I just naively thought something must happen with the hair through the lens. <laughs> to make it look all right. <laughs> Harvey Weinstein turned on me and went, what the fuck? <laughs> and I had a new wig from shipped to from somewhere the next week, you know, some, one that moved and behaved like hair does. Uh, so that's another lesson, to trust your instincts. Often if it looks like crap to you, it's because it looks like crap. You know? <laughs> it's so funny, I always wondered if that was a wig. I, I really did. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> and thank God. You were the uh, only person alive that didn't know that that was. <laughs> I don't think the wig maker is credited on the film. I think you went, don't, don't put my name on it. No. I'll never work again. Uh, not long after that, you did do a big Hollywood movie, obviously, with Star Wars Episode One, Phantom Menace. Um, did your uncle have any advice about entering the Star Wars legacy? Well, he told me not to do it. He's, he's in the first three. My uncle plays a character called Wedge Antilles. He's a red, an X-Wing fighter in the first the original three. And he's the only um, non-leading character to survive all three movies. 
and he says, look at the size of that thing. When he sees the Death Star for the first time. And I don't think it's his voice. I think they dubbed him. <laughs> but it's his voice in two and three. But he just, he, he just, he suffered from the, the kind of nonsense of the fan mail and the, you know, for, and, 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 you know, in the 70s, he was sitting in a, he was sitting in a, you know, there's none of it real. That's the really disappointing thing about doing Star Wars is you realise that it's not, I was walking around with George when I got the part in the studio where we shot up in north of London called Leavesden, where they ended up shooting all the Harry Potter films. And I, and there was, guy, you know, we, he was showing me around the art department and there was guys with chainsaws making a huge, carving this huge submarine out of blocks of polystyrene. And there was a perspex bubble on the top that looked like where we might sit. And and I, as we walked around, I, I said, will we go on, will we go underwater? <laughs> and, and he went, what? <laughs> I said, well, we go, well, we go under the water in it. He went, there's none of it real. <laughs> and a little part of me died. Because <laughs> the truth is, there is none of it real. You know what I mean? Um, it's a shame. But, I mean, there was great stuff to it. The, fight, the fighting's real, as real as it can be. You know, you have to... That was the, there were two challenges for me, really. There was three, but uh, let's just talk about two. The, two. the first one was the fighting. Is um, it was important that it was super good. It had to, and we had to raise the bar from the, the original three, which were fine. But um, the, we wanted the, the fighting to be more vicious and feel more realistic, and just because we cinemas moved had moved on, and, and um, so we spent a lot of time on that, and that was hard work. That literally is learning. Okay, one here. It's all choreographed. Every single stroke is choreographed. It's exhausting to learn. It's it's like learning a Shakespeare play, you know, because every move, if you get it wrong, you get hit. And and the 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 lightsabers are metal rods, you know, they're poles. And there, there's a guy, a lightsaber maker. That's his job. That's all he does and says. He's got a cart, uh, especially with loads of uh, blades. They're hollow tubes made of I don't know what kind of metal. And um, a different coloured tape for different actors. I think mine was orange and set. <laughs> and um, the handles, you know, then the, the handles that hang on your belt are not the handles you fight with because they're smooth and you have to spin them. Um, every take, at the end of every take, your blade is bent because you because you're full contact. You're you're fighting against each other properly. And always we would hit our, each other's knuckles. And um, you know, there's not like a like a, on any other kind of sword you would have. A, protecting bit here but not yeah. on a lightsaber so when it glanced down it would just take your knuckles you'd be like that <laughs> and um then and so that was really hard to learn but we we god it was fun you know once once you it's like learning a uh, dance a choreography once you get it it's, you start oh this feels good and then you get faster and faster and faster and in the end i'll blow my own trumpet here just a little bit um uh, in the fight with um darth maul at the end uh, yeah, Darth Maul. <laughs> Spoiler <that>. alert. <laughs> Everybody knows more about Star Wars than I do. But the guy with a two-bladed sword, we fought so quickly at the end that they had to overcrank the camera to really? slow us down. Yes. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we did. 
<laughs> often they would undercrank the camera to speed us up, right? Yeah. And uh, so that was that was something. <laughs> and then the other part of it was um, playing Alec Guinness, you know, playing yes. a young Alec yeah. Guinness. And that was lovely because I got to watch because uh, I what I've started off doing was just watching a lot of his early films when he was young and. Um, and I loved it. I've just found some real gems. You know, I love him as an actor. Mm -hmm. Oh my god! I never met him, and and I, I, which is a great shame. But in a way, I know how he felt about Star Wars, and and um, I, I I'm glad that I didn't have that meeting with him, where I I where I where I had you know I, I think it wouldn't it wouldn't have been the way that I would have wanted to meet him to to sit down with him and say okay. I'm, I'm going to play Obi Wan now, and you know, I, I'm, I'm in a way, I'm glad we didn't have that conversation. He wrote three beautiful books. I don't know if you've ever read them, but he wrote really beautiful books for act about about memoirs, um, and and they're beautiful for actors to read. I can't remember the name of them now, but you can you can look them up. They're 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 one of them is just beautiful theatrical anecdotes from that beautiful age of of theatre and cinema that he that he led, you know. The way in in Britain, he's a lovely. He was a lovely, lovely man, and um, I so I found a film of his called The Card, which is a really odd film, lovely, where he plays a. It's a kind of rags to riches story of a man who has a little donkey and a trap, a little. Um, you used to call them traps in America. Okay. Carts, <laughs> donkey and cart, oh. and uh, he is a, like a, I think a rag and bone man or something. He collects junk, and anyway, he ends up being the mayor of the little town that he lives in, and. It, it's just an odd, so he had such, because um, we had no preconceptions as to what a leading man should be then. And he, so he played these really extraordinary, odd characters, uh, but, uh, but in the role of a leading man, you just wouldn't get away with it now. They wouldn't let you do it. Yeah. Was it so it's lovely. It was lovely that, to watch him. And it was difficult to make him young, because especially him as Obi-Wan Kenobi, the voice and everything is so stamped in our mind as being... You can't help but see him with white hair and his white beard and an old man. And to try and use that accent, and, and also it's standard English, it's difficult to emote it. And it's difficult to be, you know, all the fighting scenes in the spaceships and stuff. It's not the best accent to be kind of action-y in, you know? <laughs> Over there! You know, it's not really, <laughs> not really the best thing, but I did the best I could. Uh, you, something similar happened when you did Big Fish. You were playing the younger version of Albert Finney. Yeah. Um, I mean, these are two icons. Yeah. Uh, how do you do that without, you know, uh, slipping into imitation? Or do you want to do an imitation to some extent? You want to look for something that's some... Co you want to look for something that's... Um... Well, with, uh, with, with Alec Guinness, I mean, the... the uh, no, there's not imitate, but you do want you you think about that. There's something very specific about the way he speaks, so you use some of those kind of patterns, and uh, but you don't want it to be an imitation. No, you you want to sort of it has to be your role, and so you use it, and it become, and then it, you kind of you at some point you have to let it go a bit in your thinking, I think. But with um, Albert, I think we did. Yeah, we watched each other's stuff. You know, we would we would watch. He was never on set for my stuff, and because he was always off watching golf and stuff. You know? <laughs> he said to me once, "Because uh, we'd always cross." I never got to act with him, which was such a shame. Because I was him, I couldn't act so with surreal. him. So surreal. Um, so, 
he would be walking off set and I'd be walking on. He went, I'm going home and drinking a bottle of wine. I'm going to watch the golf. <laughs> and I went, oh, you bastard. And he went, I've earned it. <laughs> and so he had, you know. And um, But I loved him so much. I'd go, I'd draw, I would pop in and he yeah. would be sitting in his boxers. <laughs> with his wine, you know, and his fags. And he had a collapsed lung just before we started. Really? He collapsed his lung. And then, uh, and I, I used to, I was smoking, I don't smoke now, but I was smoking then. And he'd go, come on. And he'd take me around the back of the trailers, you know, come on. And I'd have to give him a fag, you know, and we'd be around there going. <laughs> <laughs> I've been thinking about his collapsed lung. He was like, oh, fuck it, come on. <laughs> 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 well, he's still alive and working. Oh so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he doesn't have an agent, Albert. He does all his own. He does all that really? himself. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. He's got race horses, and he's an interesting man. Did you go back and look at some of his early films at all? Yeah, I mean, I was familiar with his work, uh, and for that, there was something about that that was fantastical anyway. And the fact that I was playing, you know, this the whole premise of that story is that his son doesn't believe these stories about him you know that he believes that his father's self-aggrandizing him you know himself in all these stories so there was a there was a and also there was a fantastical beautiful element to the stuff that i got to play in the film that 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 meant i didn't feel the need to i didn't feel the need to kind of pin him mm -hmm. down. and also we're using southern accent and you know if you watch it, any of his earlier films, he, he's not using a southern accent. So, um, but it is lovely when you get to work with people like that, when yeah. you, with, who you've admired all your life. Uh, you know they're making a Big Fish musical. Oh yeah. And you sing. Mm -hmm. Just throwing it out there. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, 2001 was a really great year for you because you did two very different films with Black Hawk Down and, of course, Moulin Rouge. Yeah, <laughs> I knew that would happen. Um, and something about Moulin Rouge and Big Fish that that strike me as something that you're so good at is in both cases you play someone who instantly falls in love, love at first sight, with a woman, and it's very difficult to pull that off and not seem like a stalker. Which was which was that? Moulin, uh, Moulin Rouge and Big Fish. Oh, Big Fish. Yeah, you yeah, see yeah, yeah. you see the woman instantly in love. Is there a, a key to playing besotted so well? I don't think that you would feel like a stalker. I mean, I don't think you would be mistaken as being a stalker if you're, if you're playing, if it's about, it never crossed my mind that yeah. worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad it didn't cross my mind. Um, no, I think that's absolutely, um, I've always loved that. I've always loved romance uh, in life and in, um, the movies and in my work, and I've I've I have all I've always been turned on by stuff that's not um, apologetically romantic, but wholeheartedly romantic. Mm -hmm. I, I like that. I think in a lot of uh, I've never been drawn to romantic comedies because they sort of shroud the romance in comedy because it's slightly embarrassing to be romantic. But I and most a lot of the stuff I've done, it's not the case. You know, it's. It's so it's so wonderful. The feelings of falling in love with somebody are so huge and all encompassing, and um, that um, to explore that and play that is really it's like I say it's some, one of the most important things about us as human beings is that 
ability to love and fall in love. And when you fall, it's just heaven. And you can't eat, and you've got indigestion, you can't sleep, it's just gorgeous. Anyway. Um, <laughs> so to play that is, 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 is really, I love that. Mm -hmm. I love that. I never thought about it like in a stalkery way. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, just on paper, the idea might be, you know, but it never plays like I that. I think in it happens. Movies. I think it yeah. can happen really like that. That you know, I think it can happen like that and and big time like that. When Baz Luhrmann told you about his concept for Moulin Rouge, I mean, were you, were you on board immediately, or was did part of you wonder how he was going to pull this off? No, I never doubted that he would. I've I've always had. Um, I, I mean, I always had absolute trust in him. I, did, I never doubted that it wouldn't be that film that he made. I mean, I felt like, he, of course, through... We had massive amounts of preparation for that film. It was unlike any other. We went over there um, to uh, rehearse, and we did a two-week workshop on the script that was... Uh, that was amazing. Like We workshopped it like a play. It was quite a different story at that point. And then um, we did a sort of live play reading of it in front of um, investors and people, I suppose, at the end of this two weeks period. And it was, you know, we would get, if there was a song, we would get up and sing to each other. And um, we worked on a few dance bits and stuff. So we would do little dance bits. It was like a work in progress. It was like a theatrical reading in a way. And then we all went home. And then six months later, we came back. And um, they'd been writing away, Baz and his partner Craig had been writing, writing, writing. And then we rehearsed for, we were there for four months before we shot anything. Wow. And we, we were in singing, we worked with singing coaches every day. We worked with choreographer every day, Mr. Cha-Cha. And, um, and we worked on scenes every day. And uh, we tried many, many songs that aren't in the film, lots and lots, because that was the beauty of the, you know, his, his idea was to use lyrics that we know. And um, so we had lots of stuff in there that, that never made it into the movie. Uh, <laughs> some very bad idea. I had an idea at the end because we couldn't find a song for the end. And Come What May had been written for something. I think I'd been Romeo written for Romeo and Juliet. It wasn't used. But I, I said, I love um, Nielsen. And I said, what about I Can't Live Without You? That'd be amazing, you know? But it was such a cheesy idea. <laughs> Can you imagine the end of Moulin Rouge? I can't live. <laughs> it'd be so bad. It'd be so bad. But anyway, we tried it. We, you know, we worked oh, it for did. a little while. We recorded it, and we recorded lots of stuff. It was just an amazing. He's such an amazingly creative man. He had. He's got this villa in, in Sydney up on the hill there, and he, we worked there. You know, we had a, one of the rooms was. A, it's a beautiful house. One of the rooms was the sort of acting room. There, there was Marius de Vries's um, sound recordist and. Um, music producer was had set up in another room. We did all our recording in there in a living room. You know, beautiful. He's so theatrical. Baz everywhere looks gothic and yeah. draped in purple and you know <laughs> crimson and candlesticks. And we we you know for four months we worked on scene. We worked on the film. We worked on the story. The story was always changing. The story changed right into the edit. I mean, he really never stops. Really, he's got a sort of problem. Baz he's a real workaholic. You know. He does meetings till four or five. He just can't stop. He's a creative genius, you know. And 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 we would work as actors. It was an amazing situation to be working on scenes with each other. And then we would go away and do other stuff. And when we came back to work on that scene, all the work that we'd done on it was now in the right. Was now incorporated in it somehow. 
So we were creatively involved in the process of of um, not only building our characters, but you know, building this world of the film and the story. And uh, I've never really been involved in anything like that before, nor or since. You know, it's a it was a unique uh, thing to do, and it was glorious. It was just glorious to be on that set. I I, I loved it so much. It was it was a it was a an almost impossible film to walk away from at the end because it was so. Um, extraordinary, and you know the the um, the set, the dance hall set, the Moulin Rouge dance hall set was it was so beautiful. We watched it being built all through this process. We shot everything in in Australia in um, Fox Studios in Australia, and we watched it being built, and then we watched it being painted. And over weeks and weeks and weeks, you know, there was layers and layers of paint on the on, the, and so it really f was absolutely authentic. You know, it felt like the pillars had been leaned against and rubbed, you know, for and the paint rubbed off over years. And it was all just broken down at the end, sadly. But it could have been disassembled and set up somewhere as a club. It could have, <laughs> it could have and it should have been. But, um, um, yeah, there was a reason why it, that it wasn't, but it's a shame. But it was just glorious. And walking onto that set with the music, you know, coming on set to sing and, and all, all of the, we pre-recorded all of the music. But we had the ability to re-record stuff on set. They had this little glass. Um, it looked like a telephone box with a mic in it, and it had wheels, so they could wheel it from one stage to the next. And um, when you were doing a scene involving singing, sometimes what you pre-recorded didn't fit anymore, didn't feel right, or you wanted to change something. Well, they had the, the ability to. You could run off set into this little box, re you know, with the earphones. You hear the orchestra, whatever, a kind of temp orchestra. You could re-record that line that you didn't, that you wanted to change, and then within four or five minutes, he could slot it into the playback. So now you had the scene the way you wanted to sing it, to um, sing with. It's amazing. You can't. It's it, and and we did some of it live. Some of the tango sequence coming down through the and coming down through the, the audience and come what may. Some of that was live, and then we had the ability to also re-record stuff afterwards. So we had the ability to sing before, during, and after. To make it absolutely um, what we wanted it to be, you know. Your chemistry with Nicole Kidman in that film is obviously iconic. Um, but you you always have great chemistry with your co-star. Two movies with Renee Zellweger. Uh -huh. um, great chemistry with Emily Blunt. Um, even Jim Carrey. And I love you, Philip, Philip yeah. Morris. Uh, what's your secret to that? I've, I've always believed that acting's about. Um, About about it feeling real, you know, it's got to feel real or to be, but to, that's how it feels the best. And uh, so I I can only really, I can only really. So I work with uh, I just I if I'm in love with someone in a film I I try and feel you know it has to feel real when you're making the scenes. And um, I've been lucky that I've not I've you know on very rare rare occasions have I ever worked with someone I don't like or haven't got on with. And um, and I love to work with. I like to. I can only really do it with other people, you know. I mean, obviously, if you're in a scene on your own, I can do that. I hope. But um, <laughs> but if you're in a scene with another actor, then I like to. I just like when they say action, just to be in sitting in my character and try and watch and feel what's going on. And uh, I. Um, 
I'm happy that you say that. I like that about. I like. I like. I'm proud of that. What you mentioned that you know because I because I think that's what acting's all about. Really, mm. I I can't. I can't not do it like that. You know, I can't just kind of pan through the wide shot and nail it on my close up. I can't do it that way. It does not to say that it. You know, I've worked with some people that do do it that way, and that's fine. It's not. It's not for me to say that's right or wrong because in the end. Um, and in the end, when it's on the big screen, nobody knows. It doesn't matter. And it can work that way. But I like it the other way. I like to play the scene for real. I like it to feel like it's, you know, and I've just been lucky. I've had amazing actors to play with. I've had, I, I, I've had amazing, I've had that experience with most actors. It's not just romantic chemistry either. I mean, we have to mention Beginners, where yeah. you share so many scenes with Christopher Plummer. No, there's chemistry and everything, because acting's about this. It's not about... It's about this feeling and it's what's happening in between us. It's it's all about that energy and and it doesn't matter if it's with a man or a woman or a dog. You know, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's, it's it is it is the same. It's exciting like that as well. It's such fun like that, and it's a, it's 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 how acting. It's when acting's at its best. You could do stuff you'd no idea you were going to do, and and um, I I think it's always I. That's why it's so awful when. Actors tell you not to do stuff. That's a big no-no for me. I would never. I think it's very important not to do that. Like I, not that to never. Do. It's not your job to tell the other actor in the scene what to do. It's never. If they're not doing what you want them to do, that's that's the, that's either that's the director's concern or it's got nothing to do with you. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I, it's a it's a mistake. Could you do it like that? I want to do this thing. So, and if you do it like that, I can. Can you just do that like this? Oh, so the scene's all about you then? Yeah. <laughs> I thought the scene was about us, you know, and, I, and that's a that's that's um, that's a no no for me. So um, I you act with what you what you know. If you're acting together, it's amazing, and you you can come up with stuff you've no idea what you were going to do. You know, you go back. You go, oh, that was really it's amazing. I, that scene in um, the sandwich scene with Emily Blunt in salmon fishing. The custard scene with Emily Mortimer and Young Adam. I mean, scenes you just can't. This stuff, you know, when you're playing with each other like that, it's so electric. You don't. You, they say cut, and you're like, like you didn't want it. You don't want it to end, you know, because it feels like another reality. It's true. It's a truth. It's fucking great. Uh, speaking of beginners, um, such a beautiful movie. Does that chemistry? Did that come naturally? Have you seen the custard scene in that? Young Adam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you who haven't, you should have a look. YouTube. Um, or watch the movie. Yeah, YouTube. YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> uh, had you met Christopher before Beginners? Did, did that father-son relationship come about completely naturally? It feels so real. Well, it's it comes about because of Christopher, and uh, but it, and it becomes it comes about. Um, it's Mike Mills. It's Mike Mills is the just a very very beautiful director. Absolutely, the I mean I would work with Mike Mills. I felt like with Mike that I I felt I had a. I, that's how I used to feel with Danny. You know Boyle. I I just I've been waiting for so long to feel that connection with another director, and and here it is. And I, thank goodness I love it. And uh, and he directs in such a beautiful way that um, that of course that kind of connection can happen and that kind of 
beautiful um, real, realism can can happen. He's just a he's a magnificent director. It's such a shame that the it's such a shame that everything's upside down. That the the really amazing, beautiful people to work with have to scramble and struggle to get films made and support and financing for their work and. And the, the people who direct that oh, that's really I should be careful. But, uh, <laughs> but, uh, it, but, it, but the 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 and maybe it has to live down there in this sort of yeah. independent world because because it's special, you know. Maybe that's that's where maybe where it has to belong. Um, which brings us to the impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, big, you didn't name directors of big movies are great too. <laughs> <laughs> they are, they are, they are. I didn't mean that. I wasn't being that. That was a sweeping generalization. <laughs> Um, now I, this is this is the point where I have to worry about getting emotional uh, talking about the impossible, okay. which um, I think everyone here has seen it, but it, it's about a family caught in the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. Thank you. And this is a very different role for you in that I don't think we've seen you play a father on screen. Yeah. Was that I do? I mean, I had kids in Nanny McPhee too, but I don't know that I was. Uh, <laughs> it was and I was good in that film, but it was... Um, good wig. But it was... <laughs> no wig. No wig you see in that film. Um, but it wasn't an exploration of... of this was the first time I've, I've had the opportunity to explore uh, what, what it means to be a parent, you know? And I've been one for 16 years, but I've never really... I must have had kids. I mean, I've been saying this for a while that I haven't yeah. had kids in the film, but I must have along the way somewhere maybe. But I've never played... I've never really explored um, that unique relationship that we have with our kids that is unlike any other that you have with any other human beings you know it's it, and, and albeit against this horrendous backdrop and this terrible um, disaster that happened in 2004 but for me it was a it was it was a it was um, it was uh, it was important to me somehow to do that you know I, I know what it's like to be with your kids for a long time and and it's um, it's not something that I've really had a chance to do, and and, and I'm I'm happy it was this film because they were firstly with, I worked with Naomi, who I've worked with before and I really like and I, I admire so much as an actress. She's an amazing talent and she's a lovely actress to work with. Um, and there was something very nice about coming back to work with her on this and to because it was so important that we create this family and we have very short space of time to do it in. We have. Um, six or eight minutes or something really of screen time to create a family that you want to that you're going to care for and follow and watch and um and it was easy to do that with her somehow she has kids i have kids we get on and then we have these three amazing little boys and they were i, I mean i can't say how brilliant it was to work with them all of them those three tom holland who plays the eldest son lucas is a is an actor. I mean, he he, he played um, Billy Elliot on stage in London for two years, and had a, an enormous amount of training up to to be. That's a, such a life changer that you know they live together. There's four Billys, I think, and four of the main cast, and they all live together in a house in London, and they have their own teachers, and they have their own gymnastic teacher and dance trainer. I mean, it's like a big. It's a life changer, and uh, but he uh, somehow has maintained his. Um, He's a lovely boy. He's a nice, sweet guy. He hasn't become spoiled by that experience. He's got good parents, and he—he's also got three brothers. So they, he was there, and we watched. We were lucky to work with him, watching him take that all that theatrical 
know-how and, and put it in front of a camera for the first time and watch him soak up that the world, you know. And then little um, Samuel, who plays our middle son, the little blonde one, he was he was more. Uh, I spent most of my time with Samuel and Oakley, the little two, and he he was the most analytical of the three. He was the least natural actor, Samuel, and um, he wanted to know why. He wanted to know why things happened. He'd look at us crying in a scene. He went, "Why?" He said to me one day, "Why?" Are we're watching Naomi being taken off to the operating theatre, and she, and we're standing the me and the, all the boys, the three boys. And Oakley's there, and he's five, and he's got tears rolling down his cheeks, and Tom's crying, he's got tears rolling down his cheeks. I'm crying. And Samuel, after the first take, looked at us, and he went, why are you crying? And I said, um, I said, well, we, we're upset about, you know, our, we don't know if she's going for an operation, we don't know if she's going to be well afterwards. We, we're worried about her, and we're upset. He went, no, no, I know, but why are you actually crying? <laughs> he, he wanted to know why we had real tears in our face. I said, well, that's how it works. That's how we do it. You know, yeah. we, it has to feel real to us. So we make it feel real to us and then it might feel real to the audience. That's the goal. He was really analytical. But when we did the scene, when we did the scene where I, I send my, I tell him he's got to look after his younger brother and I send them off to, on the truck. I mean, it was so, I'll never forget his little, his face was so worried and he, and he, he genuinely was scared. It's some really lovely, something there, you know, there's chemistry there, yeah. absolutely. Something was going on between me and that wee boy. He's seven years old and I don't know what his understanding of what he was doing is. I don't know what it feels like to be seven and to, and to be playing some of this stuff, which is painful and... Um, dark and upsetting and worrying and but my god there was that was really all going on and he has a line there he says daddy I, I'm, I but daddy I've never looked after anybody before and it jumps off the screen at you it breaks your heart and it was his line he just he just ad-libbed it in one of the takes it was it was um, not on the page and I, I love that 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 happened and then Oakley who's five was in the moment he was just a, I don't know how that he's five years old and he's the scene where I'm I walked past this guy on the phone and um, when I, just before I send them off in the truck and uh, the guy's on the phone I ask him if I can use the phone and he, he won't let me. He wants to keep his battery, you know. It was a, a moment to show the sort of selfishness of the bad side of some of the survival, um, some of the survivors. And um, at the first take I walked by and I said, I'd like to use your phone please. And he said, um, I, I can't give him the phone. And Oakley, who's five, went, give him the phone, you <laughs> bastard! <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Poor and we all stopped and went, okay. <laughs> but he was there, he was there yeah. in the moment in that. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I don't know how he knew, how he, what. And, and so there was moments of great, I mean, that's also very clever directing yeah. with Juan Antonio Bayona, who, who, who prepped the kids really very well. I, I said to him to begin with that I, that, that I wouldn't be involved in anything with the kids where we actually scared them or we um, put them in situations to, you know, fake, black, emotionally blackmailed them in any way to get yeah. reactions. I, I've seen it before and I, I, I won't do it. I wouldn't put my kids, in, I wouldn't allow somebody to do that to my children. So I would certainly not be involved in doing that to somebody else's. And um, so we had to work with them uh, as as actors and um, to begin with I came in and they might have known me for probably they both seen me in Star Wars I can imagine 
and they and all, all their parents will have told they had no acting experience the two little boys and they at all and they, so their parents must have said oh you and McGregor he's an actor and, and they probably built me up to be I could see it in them that they, when they met me I I was this <laughs> you know some somebody oh. to and and and. Maybe they were big pillow book fans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's right. Maybe um, maybe they will grow to be pillow book fans in the future. But they but we had to get over that. That's that doesn't work. You know that that, that that's not very helpful to me being their dad. And the, so we worked really really well with them. Not only with Bayona who who was very good with the kids, but our writer Sergio worked with the kids a lot, and he was sort of their acting coach and then there was a guy Ben who was is a professional child minder on movies and he uh, is in, in charge of their um, safety and in charge of their you know the hours they work and he is also their minder he's their nanny you know and uh, he works with them before on the scene and uh, anyway however it was done it was all done really really well and they they would call me daddy on set and they would call Naomi mummy on set and that was it was a game to them. We never, we we never, um, f we it was it was always clear to them what was going on. It was awkward when his daddy, when Samuel's daddy, who was a businessman, did uh, hadn't been on set. He was there with his mum. You know, we were in Thailand for four months, and when his dad visited for a week, at this, uh, he came on set. You know, and I could see him, and and Samuel ran over with daddy, and jumped in my arms. And I thought, oh God, oh no, this is <laughs> this is real dad here. You know, it was really embarrassing. But I, I went over to him and I said, I'm really embarrassed about that. <laughs> there we are. Anyway, we've been doing that. It was, and it was a nice way um, to to work. They they really they really liked it. Mm -hmm. And and through working on the scenes, you know, we we developed a tactility that we needed for the film. We needed to be able to hold each other and cry with each other and um, not 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 feel any kind of awkwardness about that and uh, I, I was lucky with them but that they they were so good those two wee boys just just amazing and I saw them last week at the premiere in London for the first time since we it's been two years they're all bigger now you know really? and um, I, I worried that it might have gone that that but after five minutes of us all being a little bit awkward it was this back it was great to see them again um, out of curiosity, because this film is based on a real family, uh, and I believe, and I know they've seen it. Um, mm. How did they respond to the film? Did they talk to you about it? They're very happy with it. I think yeah. they saw it in Spain. Um, they had their own private screening, obviously, um, and the director had told me about it. He, he took them into the screening room, and then they left. And they, you know, the, the producer and the director left them to it, and they watched it for the first time. Um, alone all of them together the five of them and then uh, the, the you know Bayona was outside pacing and you can imagine how nerve-wracking that must be um, it'd been five years of work for him and five years of working with the family and, and you know it was a uh, it was a, a of all of the audiences that will ever see his film I'm sure that was the most important one and um, and and the they can hear the they can hear the credit music outside. And they don't come out. They don't come out. And they don't come out. It was like forty minutes later that they came out, and I think they just sat and um, cried and held each other and talked about it and um, were just alone as a family after seeing it. It's so it's so um, 
honest. The film is so truthful to their story. The lines, the, one of the, the great draws, one of the things that, that made me want to do it was that when I read the script, I, I didn't know it was a true story, but I felt that I, there was some kind of bare brutality about it. There was something incredibly true and honest about it. It's the lines of dialogue. There was the line of dialogue when Tom, when, when Naomi and Tom are coming out of the water and he sees her injury on her, the back of her leg for the first time and he says, oh, mum, I can't see you like this. And I was, it stopped me. As I was reading the script, it stopped me in my tracks. I thought, that's, that's, that's a, an incredible line. It's, that's, it said so many things to me, that line. And I've, you know, then, then I learned from you know, being close with the writer, that's their line. They remember that line. That's a line of dialogue they said then. He said that to her. She remembered hearing it. And a lot of lines in the film, are, there's not many, there's not much dialogue, but a lot of the lines are lines that the family remember saying or remember hearing being said. And there's something incredibly powerful about that. I can't. That, that, I can't. Well, was I answer, <laughs> and I'm I wasn't start answering. crying, yeah. so um, <laughs> I better move on to audience questions, or, or it'll get oh, yeah, for me. It's <laughs> a lot of talking, isn't it? It's a long time to listen to me watering on. Yeah, they're in hell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is actually a question from Florida, from Miriam Ruckert. Uh, wants to know <laughs> your unexpected antics on set are well known. What is possibly your favorite joke or prank you've played on set? I think she's talking about George Clooney. Isn't yeah, she? I, I don't really do pranks on set. <laughs> she also spelled favorite the uh, English way. Your unexpected antics. Oh my! Well, I don't know that there are any. Antics. <laughs> <laughs> What's what? your favorite George Clooney antic? <laughs> he did a great one on my. Um, Bill Fickner worked with him on The Perfect Storm, and I, I worked with Bill on um, on uh, Black Hawk Down, and his friend of mine, and he's got a car. He's got a. I can't remember what it is now, which is a shame because I am a kind of car guy. But um, he's got a, a '60s muscle American muscle car that is his pride and joy, and his black. You know, he's got three blankets on it, two car covers <laughs> when he's away on a film. You know, it's and um, he he taught he, he, he you know a, a George is a guy's guy, and a, and you know they obviously talked about this car, and and he drove it to set one day when they were making Perfect Storm, parked it in front of his trailer, and. All the guys came around, they're looking at the car, oh, it's a great looking car, you know. And then they were shooting on set and George got the Teamsters to pour a couple of gallons of oil underneath the bonnet, <laughs> under, under the, coming out from under the hood. So when he was walking back from set, he went, oh, he just saw this oil <laughs> pouring out of his car. But he did a great, he did an amazing, I don't know if I should tell, I don't know what George's stories are private and what are public, so I'll, la I'll leave it there. Oh, yeah. I was, he's, I was he's, joking, but he actually is, had a great um, story. <laughs> He's done some classics, like really involved, long things that take far too much planning. Uh, we have a question from Elizabeth Sun. Uh, wants to know what's been your most challenging role to date and why? The most challenging uh, there's no there's no real challenging roles as such. I think there's just challenging moments, you know. And it can be with any, that can be unexpected. You can find yourself suddenly um, uh, unable to get where you wanted to get. And it's usually due to, uh, you know, off, I talk about that beautiful uh, atmosphere working with Mike Mills on a film like Beginners, where everything's tailored to the actors producing the most incredible, the best work you can, you know, the, 
the 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 more the realist sort of work. Polanski again, he's a he absolutely insists upon honesty and truth, and he'll take as long as it takes to get there to find the real truth of a moment. And he doesn't care, you know. You're sort of programmed as an actor in a way to do things quickly. I think you're very aware of the script supervisor whispering in the ear of the director. That was 45 seconds, and then the director goes. <laughs> So you know you somehow you pick that up and you try and do things very you know quickly, and in life we don't necessarily. Polanski was always like insistent that you would do things properly, you know, as you would find the truth of it. And um, but 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 uh, unfortunately, sometimes you find yourself on sets where that's not the case, and um, and really the acting of a scene can feel like the least important thing that's going on. Uh, and and if that's the case, then that's a real that's a real challenge for the actors, and um, it's difficult to it's difficult to um, to it's difficult to uh, you don't you don't want to be seen to be insistent or pushy or difficult, you know. Uh, but but um, that that's what that's the most challenging thing that can happen when when. <laughs> when you find yourself in that situation. And what do you do? Well, I um, I mean, you hope that you... Oh, well, I, I think your first assistant is really helpful in situations like that. I think firsts are really important for the actor. This, so, uh, um, because the director... You want to. You would hope the director would be the guy, but sometimes the first assistant is the guy to go to, mm -hmm. and um, say, "Look, I, I need to have a minute, or I, I, you know, can you just can we just take a, a second, or and then sometimes that's helpful, um, but you've got the right to do it. That's the that's the thing. You've really got the right to claim the the moment that you need. Uh, I'm not a shit. I'm not embarrassed anymore about. Um, I'm not very good with people, uh, like in my eyeline and stuff. And that that can be. I've heard people slag actors off for that. You know that it's. But I, I, if I'm speaking to you and someone's wandering over there with a the phone, I'm not. I'm not as concentrated as I could be, and I want to be as concentrated as I could be, always. So I'm not embarrassed anymore about saying. And again, the first. I always use the first. Can you have the guy not walk across the back of the set with a phone? <laughs> In the period piece. Oh, and they go, oh, fucking actors, Jesus. <laughs> okay, can you, the actor doesn't want you walking with a phone. Can you do that? <laughs> Carrie Fisher called us the trick-talking meat. She's very damning about it, but on the Star Wars, she's like, can you get the trick-talking meat on set? That was the, that's what she referred to themselves. As. Um, question from Laurie P. Uh, oh, right there. Well, uh, had the good fortune to see you and your Uncle Dennis in a musical stage production in London. Um, I thought it said kill the two of you. Will the two of you. Oh. <laughs> oh, I'd love that. I would love that very much. My uncle directed me on stage in the first play that I had done um, in a long time back. I can't remember when it was. It was a long time ago. But I hadn't been on stage for seven years. And uh, I wanted to do a play very badly, but I was terrified. And um, there's a there's a there's a silly kind of snobbery in Britain with theatre and film and it's all nonsense. We're all actors and we should be able to work where we, where we can. And um, but you feel that I felt very much that I would be judged as a film actor, on, you know, 
on stage, which is how it is. <laughs> that is how that is what happens with me. But I'll I'll carry on doing it because I like it. But um, um, so I asked him to direct. I, I said I'd want to do a play, and will you direct it? Because I think if you're there, I'll feel better about it. And he was great. You know, we we, we did a brilliant sixties play called Little Malcolm and a Struggle Against the Eunuchs. It's a nice, it's a good piece, and it's a huge stonking role for me in it, and it was great, great, great fun. And um, and to, and uh, a couple of years ago, we were, for the first time ever, acted together in a film called Perfect Sense, mm. which was directed by David McKenzie, who also made um, Young Adam. And um, it was, uh, and it's a really lovely film. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, uh, Great shame! It's a film that's that hasn't been seen by as many people as I would I would like it to have been seen by, but um, it's not to say that it's still out there somewhere to be. You can find it on DVD or something. Don't Perf YouTube Perfect it. Sense. Yeah, don't yes. YouTube it. Watch the movie. <laughs> Perfect Sense, and it, and he plays. I play a chef in it, and in the film, uh, I fall in love with Ava Green, which is not a challenge as an actor. <laughs> and, um, and as I fall, as we fall in reluctantly, sort of fall in love with one another. The, the world is struck by global epidemics that rob us of our senses one by one. So we uh, initially lose our sense of smell, and I'm a chef, and then we lose mm -hmm. a sense of taste, and then we, are we going to lose our hearing? Are we going to lose our sight? What's going to happen to humanity? These huge... Um... So it's a metaphor, if you like, I suppose, about when, when we fall in love, we lose, or they say we lose our senses, <laughs> and here we are falling in love where the world is literally losing their senses. But it's a, it's an interesting film, and I play a, sh a chef, a good chef, in a in a fairly well off restaurant in Glasgow. And my uncle plays the restaurant owner, and he's and we all these great scenes were out out the back of the kitchen, smoking joints and stuff, and um, drinking, and he, and you know we have this nice relationship in the movie. We get on, and it was just perfect. There I was at, at last acting with my acting hero, you know, and the man who. Uh, I wouldn't be maybe not an actor without you know, and we were we had this we had great scenes to play. It was lovely, lovely, and it felt both great uh, being directed by him and acting with him. It was suddenly after having a sort of, it was like a a life dream coming true, and at the same time it was it's absolutely normal because he's an actor and I'm an actor and we were just playing scenes together. It was great. A mm -hmm. uh, question from Elias Christias. Wants to know what's your favorite tool in your in your toolbox, fellow geekhead. Well, gearhead wants to know. <laughs> uh, a good spark uh, spark plug removing tool is very handy. It's very difficult <laughs> to get a spark plug out of a bike if you don't have one. <laughs> and they come in different sizes, which is annoying. But you, so you need to a few different ones. So what's up next for you? Um, let me just double check that. Yeah. What, am I, what am I allowed to say? I'm doing. I'm about to do a film in um, Perth, Australia, in February, uh, called Son of a Gun, with a young director called Julius Avery, who uh, wrote and directed a short called Jerry Can that won the short film festival in Cannes some years ago. It's a really fine movie. And um, I'm excited about that. It's a good... He's written, a film, he's written the film he really wants to see. And it starts... Again, it starts off in prison. It's a... A film about um, a, a older, established um, bank robber who's in jail forever, and a very <laughs> young kid who starts um, who who we follow into the prison system, who's got in there because he's a bad kid and he's in trouble, and um, 
and it's a film about their relationship in and then out of prison. It's not. It sounds like Philip Morris again, but it's not. It's not. It's really not like that. And um, it's it's a cool. It's a lot of. It's a lot of good stuff. Cars and it's good. It's going to be good fun. So that's and, what's next. And next year you have Jack the Giant Slayer coming out in August Osage County. Yes, Jack the Giant Slayer is coming out. I think in March, mm-hmm. which is a massive Hollywood 3D fairy tale. You know, action um, adventure. It was good fun to shoot and great actors in it. Stanley Tucci and I have. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 our friends anyway and it was just fantastic to we worked together back in uh, Life Less Ordinary he was the dentist yes. do you remember in Life yes. Less Ordinary it's the apple shot on we have set. a fight scene and, and it, it's horrible that scene when I hated that he's all over <laughs> Cameron Diaz and oh, I didn't like that um, and um, so we worked, we'd worked together a long long time ago and and um, it was just lovely to work with him again we had such we had such good fun and that's coming out in March and then August Osage County we just finished really a couple of weeks ago we shot this a play, you know, that was written in them for the um, Steppenwolf Company, I think, in Chicago. And then it went on to win the Pulitzer Prize, and it's a play that's done all over the country now. It's a great, great piece of writing. And we had an amazing cast in it. And uh, so that we just shot in in, in Osage County in Oklahoma oh, really? um, and finished it a couple of weeks ago. Who do you play in that one? Uh, what's, what's his name? Um, <laughs> Bill. You really couldn't remember his name then. Is he the father? No, no, I don't play the father. I play the, um, I'm the husband of the favorite daughter. Okay. They're separated and nobody's meant to know that they're separated. Okay. It was a great experience. I mean, it's nice to work on really good text like that when you're, when you know something's really good writing. When you start playing, sometimes you have a moment where you, where you realize you didn't realize it was as good as it is. You know, and I felt like that with this, a very long um, dying d- dinner scene in in um, in the play, which, which involves every character in the play. It's the only scene where we're all in it together, and it was a 14, 15 page scene, which we split over three days. And um, when we were um, shooting that scene, I you could just you you I realized how good it was. You know, yeah. when you when when you when you got great actors working on good text it's something you know other happens which is really which is really what happened there i think i can't wait to see it i can, we, I can never wait to see what you do next it's always something exciting thank you so thank much thank you for being so here much thank you guys thank you very much thank you for listening to the sag after foundations conversations podcast if you appreciated what you heard please support us with a review or donation and reach out to us on twitter instagram and facebook at sag after found We'd love to hear from you.